This is RSA Radio. I'm Matthew Taylor. We're very conscious of our place in any social setting, in any group. We're very sensitive to this. In a more unequal society, status hierarchies matter more. When we are anxious or chronically stressed, our reproductive systems, our immune systems, what our brains are doing, our hormones, everything is affected. Inequality is not just unjust, but makes for a society plagued by health and social problems. From children's educational attainment to obesity to violent crime to lower life expectancy, it makes us all worse off, even the rich. Why? Because in more unequal societies, we're more anxious about our status, and this stress causes greater incidences of mental and physical illness. That was the core argument of The Spirit Level, published in 2009. It appeared to cut through ideological arguments about whether levels of inequality are just, with evidence that inequality was bad for everyone. A public health argument for a more equal distribution of income. It was called by one reviewer an idea big enough to change political thinking. It became the subject, not surprisingly, of fierce criticism and debate. Kate Pickett, who co-authored the book with her husband Richard Wilkinson, joins me today to talk about the spirit level. Kate, thanks for joining me. Thank you for asking me. Kate, you and Richard Wilkinson, your husband, are both professors of epidemiology, studying the social determinants of health and health inequalities. When did you decide to write this particular book? What was the motivation? Well, we decided to write it, I suppose, about two years before it was actually published. So in about 2007, because we'd both been doing research on the impact of inequality on health and other issues for a number of years. We'd worked on this independently and more recently we'd been working on it together. And we could see that inequality did have a wide range of impacts across a a large range of different problems and that it was a big effect, and yet it didn't seem to be known by policymakers, by politicians, or by the public. Nobody reads research papers, so although we'd been publishing our research in peer-reviewed journals for a number of years, nobody really pays attention to that. I mean, not even your colleagues really read (laughs) research papers. And we would listen to the news, we would hear somebody discussing one of the issues that we knew was affected by inequality, say teenage pregnancies, and yet the role of inequality wouldn't be discussed. So we felt we really wanted to get it out there in the public domain. And for Richard, he felt that this was going to be his sort of last book, you know, that this would be his final attempt to get the research more widely known. So it was a very conscious decision to write something that would appeal to people who were not academics, you know, to to do something more for a lay audience um, and that we hoped would have a larger reach. Well, it certainly achieved that. I, I can't help asking, you know, Simon and Garfunkel, Lennon and McCartney, Wilkinson and Pickett. What, did you? How did you work together? Do you did you separate out chapters or how, what was the process? We really enjoyed doing that book together. So at the time, we actually shared. Um, a study and one long desk. So we sat next to each other um, and we did start by dividing up chapters and we would draft them separately. 
and then we would swap them and read them and edit them and swap them again and swap them again. And we learned to um, listen to each other and respect each other's judgment because it's very hard when you get something back from anybody with a lot of red pencil through it. And sometimes, you know, you're very attached to a way of saying something. But we've learned to to listen to each other. And I think we both feel that our writing improves when we share the process. And we've just finished another book together. It's just gone off to our publishers. Um, and I think that process was easier this time because we've learned What's how to do What's the new book it. about? It's about the pathways through which inequality affects us. So okay. the spirit level is much more about the impact on the whole population. This is much more about how that process works. Right. Well, I think we're going to come to that in a few minutes. This journey you describe, Kate, from writing for an academic audience and then making the decision to write something which is more hard-hitting, more direct, was that something you were both equally happy with, that, that shift from the, the kind of academic language to a more kind of political advocacy way of writing? I think so. It's, it's a very different process. You know, you, you really have to think about who your audience is and we did have to learn what what people can and cannot take in easily or or not understand i mean we for instance work with graphs all the time i mean it's a, it's a daily thing to look at a graph and immediately be able to to see what it means um and when we shared our work with with friends and family we realized that you know lots of people don't look at a graph like that it does need to be explained. Um, it does need to be fairly simple. So there was a process around becoming more direct. But there was also, as you say, the issue about becoming more direct about the content. Um, and there's also academics of... sit on the fence all the yes. time, and, and we're, we're very cagey about the inference of what we're studying. We say, well, it might mean that, but these are the limitations. We actually felt that the evidence was robust enough that we could go out and and make a strong case for it. And there's a kind of reflexive quality to the book, which is you don't just explain something, but you explain why it is you're explaining it and why it is you're explaining it in that way, as if you're always aware of the way in which people might misunderstand things, misinterpret things. Oh, well, I'm glad that came across. I'm, yeah, that was certainly what we were aiming for. Um, but the other point about advocacy is, you know, as epidemiologists, our discipline really it's, is public health. And public health has always been a political campaigning kind of discipline from its very start, really. So we are used to, in our discipline, advocating for the kind of change that we would want to see. Now, I think if I was to, to, to mention the spirit level to people, they would say it's a book that says inequality is bad for people. And, you know, that's true. Uh, but there's a, there's some really interesting, subtle elements to that. Uh, and I hope, hope we can kind of remind people of, of those rather surprising elements of the argument. And, and the first thing is this idea that health inequalities are not entirely explained by health behaviours uh, or conditions amongst the, the less well-off, but by inequality itself. And I think I'm right in saying this was something that was first kind of grasped by something called the Whitehall study, which looked at the health of British civil servants. And that was a very important one in, in starting to change people's awareness of how inequality per se impacted people. Tell us about that. So the Whitehall studies are of civil servants in England. And the first studies were really looking at um, risks of cardiovascular disease, heart disease, deaths from heart disease, and the risk factors for them. And what the Whitehall studies really uncovered was what we call the social gradient 
in health. So health is worse at the bottom of society, it's better at the top, but it is a graded relationship. So the Whitehall studies look at civil service grade as a proxy for socioeconomic position. And they found that although the risk of dying of heart disease was four times greater at the bottom of the civil service compared to the top, even if you were just below the top, your risk of dying of heart disease was greater than if you were at the very top. All of these people in the studies, of course, were employed. So there was nobody in there who was unemployed or homeless or extremely poor. And yet you could see this relationship between their social position, their their status within the hierarchy, and their risk of disease and dying. And so it was immediately apparent that those differences couldn't be caused by material factors such as um, whether or not you can buy a bigger car or whether or not you can afford a larger house, that there must be something else going on and that um, it's your position in the hierarchy itself that must matter. So those studies were really the clue to the idea that psychosocial factors can have a large impact on health. And as the Whitehall studies went on, they unpicked that. Um, They were able to demonstrate that there were more markers of stress, of chronic stress, further down the social hierarchy. They were able to demonstrate that the way people felt about their work, whether um, it was under their control or whether they felt their workplace was unfair was also um, an explanation of their risk of disease that was related to their place in the hierarchy. So the Whitehall studies were really key to us all understanding the power of the gradient. So it's one thing to demonstrate a statistical relationship, but it's another and critical to being able to develop a story that the public can understand to demonstrate how it is that one set of factors translate into a different into a set of outcomes, that kind of causal pathway, which I think is what your mm. new book is about. So help us understand how, because on one level you think, well, how can a concept hurt people? Inequality sounds like a, a kind of concept, and you're saying it actually makes people sick. It makes people more likely to have drug and alcohol problems, to be suicidal. Explain that causal pathway. Exactly. So we have to we have to be able to explain in effect, how inequality gets under the skin, how it, how it gets into our bodies. One important thing to remember is that we show that inequality affects behaviour as well as bodies. So we know that it must be getting into the mind somehow. And it's clear that the mechanisms are to do with how we feel about ourselves when we see ourselves judged by other people, that we experience ourselves through each other's eyes and that we're very conscious of our place in any social setting, in any group, of our place within the hierarchy, whether we're inferior or superior. We're very sensitive to this. Um, It seems to be part of our evolution that we have become um, very social animals And that means that inequality has a way of of getting into us because in a more unequal society, status hierarchies matter more, they become more salient, um, the social distances between people are increased. So it's not too much of a stretch to to realise how that can start to have an impact on the way we all feel, on the way we all behave, and therefore on the way we all experience different levels of stress. Um, and there is a, a neurological basis for this as well. This 
effect of inequality, status, insecurity, these things are expressed in our brains through the release of certain chemicals. Absolutely. And, and there's starting to be, and this this is definitely research that's come out since we wrote The Spirit Level, there's some really exciting stuff coming out from psychoneuroimmunology. Um, so if I were to put you in an experimental setting, Matthew, and, and you would think you were just playing a ball game and everybody else had been told not to pass the ball to you, um, you would experience that social exclusion as if it were physical pain in exactly the same areas of your brain. Your brain would have the same response. That's fascinating. But this isn't an, you're not you're not in this sense being reductive in the sense that you're saying that this is about an individual level effect. What you're saying is that this is a social phenomenon, but ultimately it can be understood in terms of chemical changes in the brains of individuals. Chemical changes in our brains, changes in our immune systems. Um, when we are anxious or chronically stressed, every physiological system is affected. Um, our reproductive systems, our immune systems, yes, what our brains are doing, um, our hormones, everything is affected. Can I ask you about something that's happened in the last few years? I think also since uh, certainly the first edition of the book, or we become aware of it. I'm interested in why you think it's happened. So there has been this quite remarkable decline in teen pregnancy and also, I think, evidence of decline in teenagers drinking and taking drugs. Now, as far as I can see, that hasn't been accompanied by a massive reduction in inequality. Does that defy your theory? What do you think is going on there? No, it doesn't defy it. Um, it's an interesting phenomenon. Um, and certainly those declines are probably related to changes in deprivation. But we have never said that inequality is the only cause of any of the health and social problems we look at. We think it is a root cause, um, and it's certainly um, very highly correlated with rates of pregnancy in, in different places. Uh, teenage pregnancy, sorry, and teenage births. That doesn't mean it's the only factor affecting them. And it may well be that other things that happen in society will have an impact. One thing to think about inequality is that you can have inequality that's more pronounced at the bottom of society, that's more salient for people at the bottom, or you can have inequality that's driven by what's happening to people at the top. And what we've seen in the UK over the past decade or so is that our fairly stable, sometimes slightly increasing inequality is driven by what's happening at the very top. So that might mean that this particular kind of changing inequality that we've got at the moment is less important for teenage pregnancy, for instance, than it is for perhaps levels of trust or, or something else. Let's turn to another really important part of your argument that I think made people at the time and since sit up and take notice, which was Okay, inequality is bad for the poor. We can all, most of us, accept that. But you were arguing as well that inequality is also bad for the better off. Now, be, let's be absolutely clear. What exactly were you claiming in that regard? Not surely that everyone, 100% of people in society, were worse off as a consequence of, of inequality. So the kinds of studies we have that demonstrate this are studies that will, say, compare people in the top fifth of incomes in more and less equal societies or in the top third for education in more and less equal societies. And what they show is that even if you are in those top social class educational income groups, you are more likely to have worse outcomes than your equivalents in a more equal place. So we never know about the super rich, you know, the absolutely phenomenally um, 
super rich because they don't come into health or or indeed income surveys. But we can talk about, you know, the top fifth or the top 10% or, or the top third. And there the picture is quite clear. One of the studies that has really helped us understand this came out since we wrote our book. It's a study of anxiety about status in different European countries. And the researchers use European um, survey data and they look at levels of anxiety about your status in people across the income distribution. And they show very clearly that although in any society the rich are less worried about their status than the poor are, in more unequal societies, at every point in the income distribution, people are more worried about their status than their counterparts in a more equal place. That's interesting because it, 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 it helps to explain the relationship, doesn't it, between uh, inequality and social mobility to some extent, so that social mobility rates seem to be higher in more equal societies. And one argument for that is because it's less frightening when we talk about social mobility, we're always talking about people going up. Mm. Of course, you can't have social mobility unless people come down <laughs> as well. It's part of your argument that in more equal societies, it's less frightening to go down. People are less resistant to the possibility of downward social mobility. I'm not sure. Um, in a way, it almost seems as if in a more equal society, things are less stuck. So, yes, that might mean it's less frightening to go down or it might mean it's less frightening to try and and move up as well. But it is very clear that you can't have equality of opportunity without greater equality of outcome. And I think, you know, you may well be right that um, there's less anxiety about your status, less worry about how you're seen, less fear of being left behind, perhaps. And so maybe that frees people up to aspire to different things, um, to pursue different kinds of, of life courses. So it's a kind of oddity, isn't it, of the political debate, although... Labour with, with, with more left-wing leadership is, is unafraid, I guess, to talk about redistribution. But for many years, it felt like you couldn't talk about overall social justice or redistribution, but you could talk about social mobility because that was a yeah. safe subject because yeah. we all agreed that everybody should have a kind of similar starting point. Yes. But it was kind of, it's an ironic irony, isn't it? Because if actually you need more social justice to have more social mobility, to uncouple those arguments is in the end perverse. Indeed. Um, and I hope that... The fact that we have got people across the political spectrum who do agree that children should have equal chances will mean that as the evidence becomes better and better known, they will see that to ensure that they are actually going to have to do something about poverty and inequality and deprivation rather than just try and fix children's life chances after they're born, try and correct for their different trajectories. One one of the bits of this argument about the effect of inequality on the better off that I found also kind of quite challenging is is the difference between absolute goods and positional goods. So if you're healthy, it doesn't make me less healthy. But arguably, in a competitive labour market, if your children do better at education than my children, they will do better regardless of our overall performance. It's a positional good. It, it is inherently mm -hmm. competitive. So. It's hard to imagine that educational inequality doesn't in the end benefit those at the top because they are winning the race. Oh, educational inequality definitely benefits um, those at the very top because they will be winning the race. But that's probably, if you look at it just in terms of money, 
um, and how they're doing within their own society. But if you look across societies, you'll see that actually they would be doing better somewhere else um, where educational inequalities were lower. So just to, just to get this absolutely right, you're not saying that the most advantaged people in an unequal society... Uh, will do worse than everybody in a more equal society. You're no. saying that they will do less well than the, their equivalent exactly. in a more equal society. That's right. Very good. Okay. So these are very powerful arguments. And I remember when the, the, the book came out, it really did cause a stir. You you said uh, earlier on that that was, in a, in a sense, your intention. But were even you surprised at the fact that it, it became you know front page news? Yes, we were very surprised. I mean... You should be careful what you wish for, shouldn't you? I mean, our intention was to get this out into the public arena, have debate, but we were completely blown away by the extent to which it became news, um, the extent to which it challenged people. We did expect it to be a quite short-lived phenomenon. Um, another very prominent academic said to us, be prepared for you know two weeks of whirlwind Actually, our lives, it's been a whirlwind ever since, you know, really hasn't died down. That took us completely by surprise. And I guess another part of this is you've been used all your career up to this point to polite. Well, I mean, actually, academics (laughs) can get quite heated, can't they? But but relatively polite criticism. Yes, yes. You know, a a slight questioning of your data (laughs) in an academic journal. Suddenly you've got right wing newspapers, think tanks, just people who, who, who want to get noticed really laying into you. How, how did that feel? Oh, really horrible. I mean, neither Richard nor I like conflict. I mean, I did spend four years at the University of Chicago, so I'm used to quite, quite robust questioning of my, <laughs> of my methods and data in, in seminars. But no, this was beyond that, obviously. And it was very hard to know how to deal with it because... If you're dealing with academic criticism, you do it in peer-reviewed journals and you carefully explain why you did what you did and call on other sources to back you up. But when you're being attacked with specious methods, it's very difficult to counteract them in a public way because you have to kind of get into technical details, which is what you were trying to avoid in the first place in putting the work out there. You did an mm. event at the RSA. Yes, we did. <laughs> and I remember talking to my team saying, look, I want this to, to get to the heart of the issue, but I don't want us to disappear into Gini coefficients. And it was hard for actually not just for you, but the people you were debating against to kind of keep it at a level of principle, because in the end, these issues are resolved by statistical argument. Yes, they are. So, for instance, if we show a relationship between inequality and a measure of health in 20 countries, and then somebody comes along and says, well, if I remove five of those countries, that relationship has gone. Part of the reason why that relationship might disappear is purely to do with statistical power. That's not an easy thing to explain in a, in a debate in public or a newspaper article or anything else. But really, time has, has healed <laughs> um, our feelings about that because the evidence base just grows and grows. Did you think, uh, you make a distinction, I think, in the second edition of the book between kind of legitimate criticism and, as yeah. you say, you know, specious, yeah. you know, people yeah. who've obviously just been told by a newspaper editor find a way of attacking this book and they're going to do it until they can find something to say. Were there criticisms that were fair? When you Were, were there things that, that you thought, yeah, OK, that's a reasonable point. You know, if we were starting out again, we might have addressed that a bit more. I mean, for example, some people said that you didn't possibly take the kind of question of, 
status sufficiently uh, seriously because you were focusing so absolutely on in- income. I think they're fair points to debate. We view income inequality as an exceptionally good proxy for social status in modern rich societies. And it's one that actually enables you to tell what the scale of a hierarchy is, how steep a hierarchy is, how far apart different social classes are. So, you know, if we knew that, say, in France, there were a higher percentage of people who were working class than in Britain, that wouldn't tell us how far behind the middle class French working class people were compared to English working class people, for example. Whereas income differences gives you a scale. So you can actually say this society not only has more working class people or more rich people or more middle class people, but they're further apart from one another. The status differences are larger. So I don't think we ignored status at all. We may not have communicated effectively why we felt status class and income are so closely interlinked. I mean, people have written suggesting alternative explanations quite often. That's always interesting, always worth thinking about, because it is the biggest challenge in observational science that something else might be explaining the relationships that you see. So let's turn to what seems to me to be the biggest conundrum in all of this. I think you're right, Kate. I think you're right when you say that when the book came out, uh, people found the thesis threatening politically. They found bur- certain bits of it can almost counterintuitive, the idea that, as I say, a kind of concept like inequality can translate into into these terrible kind of social outcomes. But as time has passed, it seems to me more people have accepted this. I remember a time in the 1980s when a conservative government wouldn't even allow talk of poverty or inequality. They were seen as dangerous kind of empty concepts, and that seems to have changed. So there's greater recognition of inequality there's greater acceptance of your arguments, but is there any evidence for it translating into either politics or policy? The rhetoric has changed, you're right. And actually, I remember a time in the 90s when you couldn't talk about inequality within the Labour Party, let alone the Conservative Party. I apologise. So, <laughs> <laughs> so things have certainly changed. And yet, at the same time, we see our societies, most societies becoming more and more unequal. And I think I'm right in saying that given welfare changes and others, over the next two or three years, It'll Britain's going to become worse. much yes. more unequal. Yes. The only region of the world that's going in the opposite direction is Latin America, where recently many countries have become more equal. But in most of the world, inequality is growing. In the UK, we're back to levels of inequality that we haven't seen since the 1920s. So it really is um, a bad time for us in terms of inequality. And the UK is sort of pulling away from the rest of Europe in those terms as well. But you have to see the rhetoric change first. So this, it may be that we're at the start of a very long process. At the World Economic Forum now in Davos this year, inequality was identified. They thought it was the number one um, challenge for the world over the next decade. And interesting, the OECD have added an extra dimension to your argument because they've made the relationship between inequality and economic success. Absolutely. And the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank as well. They are all saying that when um, societies are more unequal, it affects economic stability, it um, hampers poverty reduction, and it doesn't improve growth. So all of the old economic arguments for tolerating some degree of inequality have fallen by the wayside. And those international organizations and institutes 
are talking a lot about the dangers of inequality for the economy, for the environment, um, and for people and society. And inequality is one of the um, UN Sustainable Development Goals for 2030. There are 17 of them, and reducing inequality is goal number 10. So we're getting a lot of talk, and we now have a sort of an international framework for thinking about this, and yet our national governments often are not... Um, pulling in that same direction. Is that, is that sometimes in your in your writing, it, it feels like you're saying it's just about political will? Or is it that actually it is quite hard to do this? I'm sure Quite it's... hard to create a more equal society. <laughs> I'm sure it's hard. But of course, we have been a more equal society in the past. It's not like it's not something that the UK has achieved. Um, societies do change in their level of inequality. So it's clearly not impossible to either become more equal or more unequal. I think political um, will is at the heart of it. Where that comes from is a good question. Um, And if we look at all of our big social movements of the past, say, half century, they have not come about because politicians at the top decided to grant civil rights to people in America or grant equal rights to women They've come about because of grassroots movement of people demanding that society look different. So it may be that we need that grassroots pressure and demand before our politicians actually take the kinds of actions that we need to see taken. I would say that at the moment we see action and certainly discussion at international level. And we see it at the local level in the UK. Since we published our book, I think it's over 15 local authorities have set up fairness commissions to look at income inequality within their areas and to see what they can do about it. Do you get asked to serve on all of them? We don't get asked (laughs) to serve on all of them. I think Richard may have actually talked to all of them. He chaired one of them and we were both on the York Fairness Commission. And they have been um, very progressive. Um, For instance, York City Council is now a living wage employer as a result of the Fairness Commission, and not only pays all of its own employees the living wage, but requires that any company with whom it contracts um, or does procurement, that they do so as well. So you're not, even though the conversation you've created is way ahead of policy, you're not pessimistic. You think in a sense that policy is the lagging indicator, the, the discourse I think has that's changed, right. see things chipped away. Let me and- just ask you one last question, Kate. There will be some people listening to this who hear you criticising inequality and they will say, so what's your perfect society? Is it one where we're all you know, wearing the same clothes and eating the same food and everything is undifferentiated? Is there a healthy level of inequality, Kate? Well, the answer is we, we really don't know. So all of our work is empirical. It's not theoretical. It's looking at actual levels of inequality in real societies and real levels of outcome. And what we see is that In the most equal societies that we have, which are the Scandinavian societies and Japan at the moment, we do see that things are much better. We don't know what would happen if things got more equal than those societies. Who can tell? Um, But within the data set, as it were, of societies that we have, it does look as if the more equal you become, the better we all do. And certainly the question of a society being too equal is not uh, one, and not something we have to worry about. No, in we're the, quite in a long the, way from that. <laughs> quite a long way from that. <laughs> Kate Pickett, thank you very much. Thank you. This podcast has been an RSA and Resonance production. To receive future podcasts from the RSA, make sure to subscribe.